Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, Good morning, friends. It's a pleasure for me to be back with you um, and to be able to share uh, from God's Word on this Mission Sunday. Had the church not been reformed as it was 500 years ago, it is likely that missions as we know it today, we would not be engaging in it, let alone meeting as we are. Because what the Reformation has given to us is the freedom to not only gather, but the pleasure of being able to reform the doctrine of the church, and I mean the church universal, from a traditional or hierarchical um, understanding of what the Bible says, where it was handed only to those that were part of that hierarchy, the Bible has been placed in our hands. We hold it as we read it. We treasure it in our homes, not only when we gather, but we have the pleasure of being informed and instructed and taught by the Word of God personally, privately, in our own devotion, taught by the Spirit and knowing that the Word is alive and speaks to us as we read it. And we ask ourselves a number of questions as we approach it. What is this telling us about God? What does this tell us about ourselves? What does this tell us about how we should live? about who God is, how we relate to him, and how we make him known in the wideness of our earth. Um, I was with you a few weeks back, and this morning as I'm here, I'm given the assignment of being able to speak to you on missions and what it is that God wants done. Uh, Since the last time I was with you, I've been busy the last five Sundays in different churches. Uh, Most recently, I was at Calvary in Oshawa for their missions conference, Uh, They brought missionaries from around the world that they support uh, to give reports, and I had the pleasure of being the keynote speaker, three plenary sessions, and then two with leaders and missionaries. And friends, it was just amazing how we saw God working in the hearts of all of us as we both listened to the stories and to the Word of God and how those things meshed to make us treasure all the more the gospel of Jesus, what it is that is happening in us, And then to see around the world what is happening through his ambassadors, as we read today. That we are citizens of heaven, and we have the pleasure of making him known. I want to read another passage of scripture uh, as we focus on, and focus on it with you this morning. It it is written from, uh, I I think by common record, and historians and scholars agree that Jesus, uh, that um, John, who was self-stylized in his gospel, that he wrote the gospel of John, as the beloved disciple, likely the youngest, and probably at the time of writing, the eldest of the apostles. Many of them have gone on to heaven, been promoted through martyrdom and persecution. Uh, John himself, uh, whether it was after the writing of this or before the writing of this, was a prisoner of the Roman Empire sent by the court to the island of Patmos, where he recorded the revelation of Jesus Christ in that book and sent it to the seven churches. But here he's writing a letter to a friend. 
We read letters that are written to us from a friend differently, don't we, than a circular letter that is addressed just to everyone. Even though at the end of it, it might have a few personal greetings, we lean in when it's a personal letter. And this is one of the few that's recorded in the New Testament. Philemon is another uh, that bears his name, and uh, Paul is writing him there about Onesimus. But here, John is writing, and we don't know where Gaius lives. We don't know the city that it was sent to. We might have some guesses. We're uncertain about it. That actually makes the letter all that much more meaningful to us because we can see ourselves as if we were the ones that John is writing. And this is what he has to say, Third John, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read just the first eight verses. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God." For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Uh, Father, I'm just going to ask one more time as we've gathered that you, Father, would use my words. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts today glorify you, encourage us, May your spirit today be our teacher, and may we leave this place built up, challenged, comforted, leaning into the path of change that you've set us on in Christ, that not only might we showcase the gospel and grow in it to maturity, but may we join with others in making that message known here and everywhere our footlands. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage of Scripture, as I already indicated, John is writing to a friend. He's writing to a friend in a context, we're not really sure about it, but he makes a number of observations as he writes to this friend. He calls him beloved, and not just once, he says all the way through. Now, could that be stylistic? I have a friend from Lebanon, maybe some of you have met Bashara Karkafi at one of the gatherings, and Bashara is an amazing individual who often when he speaks to a congregation says, beloved of Jesus, beloved he would say, and has used this in a way that is really warm. He's not using it just as a stylistic title, he genuinely means it. And as he uses it a few times, you, you realize He's serious about this. He, he really thinks we matter to him and he, we matter to God. And it's true, you do. You see, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters. We use that. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother. And we are in this through faith in Jesus, connected as a family. It's a lovely metaphor in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I heard how you honored your pastor last week. I was so excited, not just for him, but for you. Because it was a way of you recognizing in the line and legacy how it is he's contributed to your well-being. He's served you. 
He's loved you. He's been a father to so many of you. He's been an uncle to others, a friend and a fellow brother. You understand what I'm saying about all these relationships in Christ. And when you recognize them and lean into them and pay honor to whom honor is due, as the scripture says, you glorify Christ and you satisfy one another. You walk away from that event going, we are so grateful to God for our pastor and to our pastor for telling us how good our God is. It's a wonderful movement of grace in a family where you recognize this and see this. I think this is the tone that is going on between John and his friend, Gaius. He also describes him as a person who was concerned about the truth of the gospel, but more, he was concerned about maturing in his obedience to the gospel. You see, one of the problems we as disciples or believers or followers of Christ, Christians as some would call us, really is the diminutive term little Christs because we're modeling ourselves after him. One of our problems that we have with the gospel is this distinction between truth or doctrine and practice, as if we can divide them. As if having right doctrine is enough. And candidly, in the scripture, it's not. If the truth of the gospel is not manifest in the life of the person who professes it, it's really useless. It's a creed that has no power. It's not transforming him, and it's not an agent of grace to anyone else. In other words, you can have excellent doctrine and believe right things and have no influence or transformation at all. James actually remarks on this in his little letter to the scattered and persecuted church. You say, you believe, well, the devils in hell believe. Uh, What's the difference is there's no manifestation in a devil, and there ought to be a lot of manifestation in you is his point. In this passage of Scripture, we see that John is, is, is again laminating or joining together these two things, truth and obedience, because listen how he words it in 3 John, uh, his little letter, and he says, I rejoice greatly, this is verse 3, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as if it belonged to him personally. But then he adds to it this, not only to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. In other words, what you believe is actually demonstrated by how you live. Our pastor asked a very interesting question. If the church was to disappear, would anyone miss you? That's about the impact of the church. Let me ask another question. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's powerful too, isn't it? You see, the measurement that, that John says in Gaius' life is, you live what you believe. You practice what you know to be true. Now, that's not to be unusual. That shouldn't be for someone who is, what should I say, sort of more serious than the average, or or someone who has spent years studying the text. It's something that ought to be true for all of us because this is the single objective that Jesus gave to the twelve who we call apostles, those he sent out to continue the work to be his missionaries, as it were, He actually says to them that you should be sharing the gospel with this result. People should do it. That's what we need to ask ourselves every time we gather. 
every time we pick up the book and read it is, what should I do with what I know? Now, in case you think this word obedience, which actually means to be in alignment, to be in practice, to keep, to follow, to do what it is it says, this is the major point. It is never knowledge-based on knowledge itself, as if we were academics and we're simply going to school all of our life to learn more and more and more and more about what the Scripture says. Now, it's true we need to know what it says to do what it says, but if all we do is know, we are going to be educated way beyond our obedience. I, I like to say to congregations periodically as I'm teaching, why should God tell you a new thing if you're not doing the old thing? Why should he give you a new commandment if you're not obedient to the last commandment? Now, God is not going to limit your knowledge, so to speak. But what impresses him is not what we know. It is if we are doing what we know. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this to his, those who were gathered listening to him to Luke chapter 6, verse 46, the second slide. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, it's a pretty reasonable question to call him master and then decide he's a consultant and not the leader you should obey. I remember this discussion going on as I was having with another pastor, and he said, I'll never, I, I can't forget this when we were talking about obedience and someone interrupted me and said, obedience is for dogs. Wow. Well, the last I checked, it was for people too. You have speed limits, you obey them. Right? You have children who you expect. Now, you might not use the word obey. Often what we do with our children is we say, now look at me in the eyes right now. Right? We want to know eye to eye, and the kid will do everything but look at you because he knows he's in trouble. Right? Or sometimes we'll catch our kid doing something, and we look at them and say, what are you doing? And the kid looks at us like, is this a trick question? But they know at that moment, as you're trying to instruct them, they're out of alignment. They're being but disobedient. They're doing something you don't approve of. We'll often short-end it to our kids and say, are you listening to me? They don't mean, do you hear the words? What do we really mean? Are you doing what I said? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He is the Lord. Honestly, friends, he's to be obeyed. Ma Matthew chapter 28, the marching orders, the final words that Jesus says to the gathered disciples on that hill in the Galilee where he meets them after the resurrection. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, it's a huge mission endeavor. In other words, I want to tell you, God has always been the missionary God. Jesus came because God was on mission we so love John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world. What's that? That's missions. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't be here. And because it's true, we are here. You see, we don't actually have a mission. We have a missionary God who has a church. And he says to us who love and follow him, make disciples everywhere. 
right? And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God who lives in eternally perfect fellowship with himself in complete love and satisfaction, but wasn't willing to hang on to that, as it says in Philippians. But Jesus let go of that connection with God and took on what? The form of a servant. And in that form, humbled himself, humbled himself to the very death of the cross. Yeah, we get what that means. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, Jesus for us. That's what it's all about. And that's what we're baptized into, a God that pursued that, a God that gave his son, a son who came and a spirit who indwells us, and a God, Jesus, who is raised from the dead and is, as Revelation teaches, now among us watching us, observing us, leading us, encouraging us. Not absent, present. And he says, this is what you are to do, right? Go make disciples everywhere. Baptize those who have listened and received it. And then what has he said? Teaching them to what? To listen, right? No. Teaching them to consider. No. Teaching them to, hmm, contemplate, meditate. No, teaching them to do it. That's the mark of discipleship. What is a mature disciple? Someone who really knows? No, someone who does everything he knows and he continually learns and does what he learns. That's maturity. That's advancing discipleship. That's the goal of missions, to teach them to obey what Jesus said. Now, if any of you doubt if we should be involved with missions, read the first part of the verse again. And he said, go make disciples, what, of all the nations everywhere. Does Jesus want us to be involved in Sri Lanka? Oh, I'm glad you're listening and you're responsive. Uh, uh, that's always a, a delicate moment for a preacher when he asks a question and no one answers it, right? You wonder, are you for me or against you, against me? And the goal of a preacher always is to quit talking before people quit listening. But there's no doubt. Should we be in Lebanon? Should we be doing something in Canada among our neighbors? Yeah, you see what I'm saying is this is what God wants all of us to do. You can't have a mission Sunday and not know he's the missionary God. And he wants us to what? Communicate what it is he's done for us. In other words, he doesn't say, go and really work hard. And if you really work hard at this, I just might share heaven with you. Look, friends, we are qualified. We're going there. If we've trusted Jesus, we know there is a place for us. So we're not doing it so he would love us more. We are those whom he has loved, and we show we love him by telling other people there's room for them too. It's such a pleasure and a privilege. But we're not really winning the war in our own nation, let alone other nations, there are more people being born and going to a Christless eternity than ever before. 40% of our world remains unreached. 3.1 billion do not know a Christian. It's staggering. So let's change that. Let's decide, decide that we who are reformed in our knowledge would be reformed in our behavior. 
that we would only not, not only know and prize the truth that we've been given that belongs to the, the Reformation, to churches that hold that, but to make it known. Now, James also adds to this, and he says, don't merely listen to the word and what? So deceive yourselves, as the next slide shows. Yeah. Don't deceive yourself. Don't trick yourselves into thinking it's enough that I know what he's saying. Now he says, do what it says. You know, it's the Nike slogan. Just do it. Get in the game. Play your part. Do what you can with what you have. And in this passage of scripture, it's 3 John 3 and 4, those verses. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are what walking in the truth. What does it mean to walk in the truth? It means that not only are you aware of it, it is your path, your companion. In other words... You're living it out. You're doing what it says. The teaching of Jesus and the apostles in this personal letter is really telling us he's an excellent man because he's already practicing the truth of the gospel right where he lives. And what follows next in the letter is John giving him commendation about being a mission-minded disciple. He goes on and he says, you know, you have others, men like Diotrephus, who in verse 9 is refusing to recognize John's leadership and, and anyone that is willing to have missionaries come into the church. He puts them out. He said, look, now, what does it mean? It's like, it, well, I don't really know all that it means because we're not given the details, but it likely means he's one of those pretty thin-skinned and, and rather um, weak leaders who thinks if anybody else comes, they're going to take something away from him, take money away from him, take people away from him, thin the ranks in some way. He doesn't understand that God wants this done. It's about him, not about God. And so he stands up to him and he, he commends others within the letter, but this is the point. You are faithful to Christ in his kingdom when you support missionaries in mission effort. You're faithful to Christ. You're doing what he wants. You're seeing what the word says and you've made a decision. You don't have to get up in the morning and say, well, what does Christ really want me to do? I understand that when we have major decisions, we really want to know what God wants us to do. But often he's given us guidelines and we can make choices. We might not know the details because sometimes, you know, young men play this game with God. God, should I really marry her? And Jesus says, well, here's the Coles notes. Does she love me? Yes. Okay, well, she's suitable. Uh, does she love you? If it's no, well, that's not the woman for you. If she loves Jesus and she loves you, you have a chance to make it go. If she doesn't love Jesus and still loves you, it's going to be rocky. But if she loves Jesus and she loves you, she's going to be on her knees praying for you. You on your knees praying for her, there's a pretty good chance you'll work it out. You understand what I'm saying? But what we really want is somewhere to find a missing book that says, oh yeah, Keith, you should have married. Right? He married well, I think. Anthony, you should have married. And we really want Sandra's name beside yours. 
right? We want Nithya beside. It doesn't happen that way. God gives us choices, and there's a wideness to that. I often explain in decision-making in the will of God, and I know I'm drifting from my notes, but I think it's important at this point to say, we often say, oh God, please don't let me make a mistake. And it's like we have, now would we do this with our mom? There's an apple pie and a cherry pie. And he goes, oh mom, I, I want to have a piece of pie. Well, great, which one would you like? Well, I don't know, and I'm afraid of making a mistake. And she says, you're nut. You can't make a mistake. What do you want? You just have to make a choice. Actually, one of the great leaders of the Reformation, Martin Luther, used to put it this way. When you're making a decision in the will of God and you only have two lousy choices, choose the least one and sin bravely. In other words, you just can't always sit still and wait and wait and wait. He's not arguing against patience. He's saying we have limited understanding and we need to follow where the Spirit's leading. But this we never have to question. Does God want me to contribute to missions? Does God want me to engage in missions? Does God want me to help people around me come to know him? You never have to ask if that's God's will. Black and white, plain as day, true every day you wake. And so in, verse, in these verses, in, in uh, 3 John, if you have a look at verse 5, he says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who've come back and reported how, how really wonderful you've been, not only in hospitality, but you helped them on their way. You were contributing, giving support to strangers. And pastor made this wonderful statement that churches all across Canada have joined you in your mission and they really don't know anything about Sri Lanka or you and haven't met pastor personally. But they know what Jesus wants done and they're glad you're doing it and they're saying we're with you heart and soul and here's a check. Why? Because they would rather give it to you to advance the kingdom than save it in a bank or give it to something that doesn't have meaning or buy yet another thing that's only going to be burnt up at the end of days. They're paying it forward. They're advancing the kingdom. These missionaries have come from somewhere else and not all missionaries are from this church, but you have one who's in India and you're supporting them. And he's, There's a hospital going up that's going to make a difference in the lives of thousands of people. But is it the gospel? Sometimes we argue, is it the gospel? People are going to be healed physically. Are they going to get to heaven? Well, this is what I can tell you. If we weren't there healing them physically, we would have likely very little opportunity of influencing them eternally. Chuck Swindoll, a great leader and teacher and pastor, used to put it this way, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Because it's your caring that opens a doorway. So, some more beds are built. Did Jesus feed people and then say, oh, I'll only feed you if you follow me? No. Fed thousands. Did he only heal people if they followed him? We know the story. Healed ten lepers. Only one came back to say thank you. Did he regret it? No, he just said, well, where are the rest of them? 
You see, Jesus expects us to give cups of cold water. He expects us to do things for the good of other individuals, whether or not they respond. As a matter of fact, those who come through might even be from another ethnic group, different from yours, and I look out over the congregation, and I love what I'm seeing in your midst. You're not all from Sri Lanka. You're from everywhere, aren't you? All over the globe. Finding a place to worship, to be taught, to be encouraged, and contributing. And some of you, by God's grace in the future, may well come to the church and say, I have a desire to do this here. Maybe like the car wars and go back to Indonesia or the Medigals who are from Kenya but serving in, in Congo but understand African culture. Or, or maybe uh, like the Castros, she's from France and he's from Argentina and they're working in Spain. Or maybe Bashara going back to Lebanon. Or Kareem and Rita Anisi, as you showed their picture, working again in their homeland of Lebanon with orphans. You see, what we're saying is it's from everywhere to everywhere. And you're one of these churches that can be a gateway to the nations, both those you represent and those that are all around you. Do you know that there are more people born in Toronto from outside Canada that were born in Canada who live in Toronto, 51% of the population of Toronto, the GTA, over 50% now, were born outside of Canada. I love that for two reasons. It tells us that Canada is a generous, open country. Now, I think there's also a political and uh, economic reason for that because when we get people who are educated from other places, they come here and make a better life for all of us. You know, it increases the taxation and it keeps our negative birth rate going in the right direction, all of that. But what it means is the nations are in the neighborhood. You don't have to go to Mongolia to meet Mongolians. You don't have to go to Sri Lanka to meet Sri Lankans. You don't have to go to Nigeria to meet Nigerians. You don't have to go to Sudan to meet Sudanese. You don't have to go to Thailand to meet Thai people. As a matter of fact, if you want to eat any of those foods, just go to Toronto. Your belly will be full and your cultural experience will be broadened. And maybe you'll have an opportunity to make a disciple for some, for with someone whom Jesus has made live beside you. Do you know I have a family of Ukrainian Russian Jews live next to me on this side? And they've just moved, but they were a, a Trinidadian and a Syrian woman living next to us. One was Coptic and the other was nothing. And across the street, I have some Iranian Baha'is. Now, in truth, those people should never live on the same block. They're all at war with each other, you understand, in their own countries of origin. And now I think the people who are living next to us are from somewhere on the Indian continent. I haven't learned where yet. We haven't met them. They haven't moved in. What am I telling you? Nations are in the neighborhood. Get busy where you live. Pray for your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Find a way to share faith with your neighbors. And so here in the front and center is Pastor Ronald, not a stranger to any of you, and, and your story is you've journeyed with him for many years. And now we're seeing this expansive heart for missions in Sri Lanka. And I, for one, am really glad to be with him. Glad to recruit him for Fellowship International when I was the director, and now glad to be a brother with him and with all of you. My heart is richer for knowing him because he's introduced me to all of you. Should our relationship wear out, mine with you likely won't. I'm teasing. We often say we're brothers from different mothers. 
but we've got the same Father in heaven. Right? That's the family of believers. That's who we are. So what does he say to them? Why should we support missions? He says, it's for the sake of the name that missionaries go out. Did you catch that? Verse 7, for they've gone out for the sake of the name. What does that mean? There's no, there, there's no real glory in it. Now, look, we will honor our missionaries when they come back. We'll love them. But their names are likely not to be written in the historical analogs at any great book. You know, there's a few that make it in. William Carey, often called the father of modern missions. But what am I saying? He didn't do it for that. He did it for Jesus. And you know what? Most of the millions of Christians who have come and gone from the time of Jesus right through the Reformation to our day, their names are recorded somewhere maybe on tombstones that have been weathered and gone. But they're not. Bodies are there. Where are they? With the Father in heaven, waiting for the resurrection. They don't do it for glory. There's nothing in it for gain. I can certainly tell you you don't get rich in missions. Not if you're a genuine missionary of Jesus. Because you'll just be a conduit for all you get, for all you can give. It won't stick to you. Because you're not in it for that. If you are, you'll never do that. You'll find something else to do in life. So when it says they go out for the name, they count themselves privilege to be able to serve Jesus. They're not building empires and monuments. They're making disciples and seeing him start churches. Secondly, missionaries can't expect to help to gain help from the pagans. And there's so many reasons why you can't expect to get help from the Gentiles. It is that when you go to them and you start working in them, they'll ask you these questions, who are you? What is it that you're doing here in my community? And if you tell them anything that is like too upfront about the gospel, the likelihood is that the, short, the conversation will be short and the door might be permanently locked. In other words, I'm not saying you have to be crafty or deceitful. deceitful. I, I am saying that you need to understand the culture and be careful. You have to be all things to all people that by all means you might win some. Paul was not a secret follower of Jesus. He was open and clear but he also understood what to say and what to leave unsaid. You understand what I'm saying. But when you go among people who don't know the value of the gospel, you can't say, well, I'm having a meeting tonight, and if you'd really like to know more about Jesus, it'll cost you 20 bucks, but will you come? Well, I can tell you how many people you would have if that was your approach. You can't expect people to pay for the gospel at the front. Now, let me tell you, when they understand what redemption and reconciliation is, then suddenly their purse strings are open and their contributions won't be made to you, it's too late. But they'll join you to give to others who yet to know. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that the fruit we, or the finances we need is in the harvest, but you don't get it before you go to the harvest. And that principle comes from 1 Samuel 14, when Jonathan was one of the only two people in Israel to have a sword. And God said to him, don't worry, I've got many swords. Uh, Jonathan didn't ask, but he knew, where are all those swords you have, Lord? In the hands of my enemies. Let's go get some. Missions doesn't lack the resources it needs for its future, but it often lacks the resources it needs for its present. Often. 
And that's why the push of missions, and we see this in the gospel here that John is teaching and, and that, that Gaius is walking in, is that as we support missionaries, we become their partners. You see, something happens, I watched, I listened. And as Pastor was speaking, there wasn't ruffling pages or dropping books or uh, lots of people moving around. You were listening, you were watching, you were hearing. Why? Because you're partners, you're invested. But I want to challenge you, because I don't know the degree to which you are you know, invested, and only God knows, but what I want to suggest to you, is there more that you ought to do for the missions that you are undertaking? You see, we're working together for the truth. We really become partners. It's not them, the missionary, that we are advancing. It's the kingdom of Jesus we're advancing through the missionary. And I can tell you, if we heard that, you know, Pastor Ronald was having a pretty nice retreat at a fancy, posh uh, center in Sri Lanka on our money, we might not be giving him much more. Uh, actually, what he did is he made me go to one of those places and have a swim in an afternoon, just so I could experience and see the beauty of Sri Lanka from that perspective. No, we did other things with our time and talent. As we honor missionaries and send them on their way with good support, we honor God and we serve together. Look at verse 6. They came back and testified about your love before the whole church, and you'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, we treat those who are serving the name the same way we would treat God if he was among us and we were sending him on his way. But really, that's what it means. That doesn't mean that you need to pauper yourself. Well, no. It's not saying you should take the bread out of your children's mouths to give it to missions. But maybe you could forego, as Pastor said, a cup of coffee and put it in the bank and save it up and make a donation to some. You understand. You can be creative. You understand what's being said here. We're not beggaring ourselves. What we're saying is, out of all that God has blessed you, give. Although the Macedonian churches, you know, in Corinthians chapter 8, where they actually said to the apostle, we don't have a lot to give, but you can't let us not give. Like these are our brothers in Jerusalem that are suffering. And it says, out of their poverty they gave. And then Paul writes that beautiful verse. He says, isn't that like Jesus? Who though he was rich, yet he became poor. That you through his poverty might be made rich. That's how the apostle links it. He is not saying choose poverty. He's saying don't miss an opportunity. Demonstrate your heart and soul in the advance of missions. So as we conclude, I'm going to ask you to make several I wills this morning. Because an I will is an obedient statement. I will do this. Because we're in missions this Sunday. And of course, what I'm being asked to do is not only show the scope and the opportunity and the biblical relevance of mission, but to challenge you as a congregation to join in missions. Some of you may not have done that. You've been thinking about it. Maybe you've been praying about it. You've been hearing about it. But you haven't chosen, and I'm calling you to act on what you've heard. Some of you, without much trouble, could write a check for $420 on the spot and give it to sponsor a child. Some of you could do more than that. You could sponsor several. 
Some of you could contribute, as pastors already shared, with these one-time offerings to build facilities that are needed or to engage in programs that are essential. And look, there's no guilt in this. There's opportunity in this. But what I want you to say in your heart as you're making an I will statement is, I will give to the glory of God. Once I have reviewed my finances, what I can afford, linked to how he's blessed me. That would be a good formula. That would be an opportunity. That would be a chance for you to demonstrate that you've heard the text and Actually, I'm never going to ask you if you've done anything. It's not accountability at that level. I don't want to know your financial situation. I just want you to know what God says. As Brother Bruno prayed for me and Anthony earlier in the gathering, let him hide behind the cross. Well, that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm saying, if you don't like this, take it up with someone that's bigger than me, with the Lord. I'm just going to hide behind the cross and say, look, it isn't Dave's words, it's the Bible's words. As you freely give, receive, freely give. Because look, missions needs money now. Now you can leave a legacy in your will. It's a great way to serve missions in the future. But missions needs money now. Children need education now. Widows need clothing now. Girls and widows alike need to learn how to sew now. You understand what I'm saying? The needs are now. Opportunities are here. Doorways for the gospel are present. Maybe you need to say, every time I hear about a chance to go, I'm troubled. Well, maybe God's troubling you because he wants you to join. Maybe that's an I will statement. And I do know this. It's been on the heart of this church since I first encountered you. You pray for the lost. You pray for the least. You pray. And I'm saying, make sure that's an I will. I'll pray for Sri Lanka. I'll pray by name for Bati and Tissa and Lindula. I'll pray for our pastor, I'll pray for the seminary. I'll pray that the work will flourish to the glory of Jesus. Lord, you've been among us today. Your spirit has provoked us and challenged us, confronted us, and comforted us. We are so grateful that I'm not standing in front of a church that is doing nothing. I'm standing before a church that is rich in acts of mercy and kindness in acts towards missions. It was born here, and there's things that wouldn't be done without this church, its influence and leadership. I'm so grateful. And what we're asking of you, Lord, is that you would take the dreams and the first steps that have been made and take them well beyond our ability to dream and decide and act and do. And may there be out of this ministry Sri Lankans, who will have such a relationship with you and such a burden from you that the nation will be forever and eternally changed 
because the gospel was shared with children and teachers and widows and parents and tea workers. And the change that it made could not be ignored. It invited questions. It invited interest. And it led to a revival that has changed the nation. Oh God, we don't hesitate to place this at your feet. Because you know that your work is not limited by few or many. Five loaves and two fishes fed a crowd. You can do whatever you want with us when we hear you and obey. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.